Ask the Expert, and today we have with us two um, fantastic scientists from England. Alice Carr is a PhD student at the University of Exeter Medical School in the UK, working with Professor Richard Oram, Professor Sarah Richardson, and Dr. Beverly Shields. After a degree in natural sciences in 2008, um, uh, that's uh, which has enabled, uh, sorry, I had to let someone in which has enabled a wide research field bridging traditional scientific boundaries with her research exploring the interface between clinical science and islet biology. With a background in data science, she's also very interested in data obtained from the continuous glucose monitoring systems or CGMs, and the use of this in understanding how variations in residual insulin production and other factors such as exercise influence the lived experience of type one diabetes. Having lived with type one diabetes for nearly 10 years herself, she's passionate about research can what research can do um, to make life better for people living with type 1 diabetes. So welcome, uh, Alice. And we also have Sarah Richardson. She's an associate professor at the University of uh, Exeter Medical School with a passion and interest in type 1 diabetes. She has been awarded three very prestigious fellowships from the Wellcome Trust, the Diabetes Research Wellness Foundation, and the JDRF Five-Year Career Development Award. She was the first recipient of the network of um, NPOD, Junior Investigator Award, awarded for being a champion of collaborative spirit and data sharing for dedication to type 1 diabetes research. She co-leads the Islet Biology uh, Exeter EBEX group with Professor Noel Morgan and currently has nearly a 2 million pound funding uh, in funding, 1.2 million pounds as PI and a co-director of uh, 5 million, oh, sorry, 6 million research, 6 million pound research England expanding excellence in England Diabetes Center of uh, Excellence Infrastructure a patient pancreas sample. So it looks like they are building something absolutely phenomenal over there. Um, it is centered around developing a clear understanding of disease processes by which beta cells are targeted and destroyed. And she has particular interest in the role that enteroviruses and antiviral responses may play in the disease and how age of diagnosis may impact, um, you know, have an impact on diabetes endotypes. She curates the Exeter uh, Archival Diabetes Biobank, which contains the most extensive and rarest collection of recent onset type 1 diabetes pancreatic globally. She's a member of the Tissue uh, Prioritization Committee for the US-based network of pancreatic organ donors with diabetes or NPOD. And she's been an innovator in the uh, EDIA, uh, I, uh, diabetes participant in the Diabetes uh, UK, and is the chair of the JRF UK Scientific Advisory Council. She's also the member of Diabetes UK Research Studies Group, um, DRSG1, Cause of Diabetes, and is on the management board of the UK T1D Immunotherapy Consortium. She's an enthusiastic and proactive member of several international consortiums and has a real passion for team science. Wow. She's, uh, thank you so much for all the work you're doing to push forward um, the understanding of the etiology of type 1 diabetes, both of you. And um, welcome, um, you know, I'd love to hear, I guess, about what's going on at University of Exeter. And I don't know if Alice would like to share first. Uh, you're welcome to um, share your screen. Yeah, perfect. Okay, yeah, thank you for the introduction. Yeah, as um, Monica said, I'm, I'm Alice, and I'm, I am gonna take you through a little bit of the recent work that we've been doing in Exeter. Uh, that's been also joint with um, Oxford. So Rachel Besser in Oxford, as well has been an integral part of um, this work. Um, and it's, it's some of the observations that we've been looking at um, 
with C-peptide decline in living children and adolescents with type 1 diabetes, and then also what we then observed in terms of beta cell presence uh, when we've looked at the pancreas from um, donor children and adolescents too. Um, and I don't know whether any of you actually know where Exeter is, but um, <laughs> I just I thought I'd just give a little quick background as to where that is. Um, but uh, yeah, as Monica said, I, I've sort of completed my PhD or I will have done on Thursday. My viva is actually on Thursday um, in Fantastic. type 1 diabetes. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and day. that's within, yeah, big day, big day. That's within the Diabetes Centre of Excellence part of Exeter University, which is right down here in the southwest of England. And it is a beautiful part of the country. There are lots of stunning beaches, which might not align with your perception of England at all. And I do try and get out surfing quite as, as much as I still can. Um, and there's also expansive moorland, which is great for sort of Hikes it's very beautiful terrible. there. My husband is in, yeah. so I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Great, good. I'm glad you know. Yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and as you've sort of said, Monica, I think my um my research experience is is diverse. I've sort of said my PhD is in type one diabetes, and that's non-specific, I guess, for a reason. Um, I'm a jack of all trades when it comes to research. I've trained in natural sciences, so I've got expertise in all scientific disciplines are sort of underpinned by data science and computing. And during my PhD, I've worked at the interface of beta cells and islet biology, um, all the way through to sort of whole living people. And that's trying to obtain better understanding of pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes using pancreatic tissue um, from the fantastic biobanks that we've got uh, access to, mainly the network for pancreatic organ donors with diabetes, but also the Exeter Archival Diabetes Biobank, which is specific um, or curated um, by uh, a man in Glasgow but has moved down to Exeter uh, now uh, and I work a lot also with continuous glucose monitoring data to get a better understanding of how biological factors like residual insulin production measured through C-peptide and behavioral factors as well like exercise impact glucose control and I've also done some developing of classification models for, for diabetes. But um, yeah, that's the uh, the less interesting part of the, what I was sort of was going to talk you through. Just a little bit about me so you kind of have a background as to what um, and who I am. But um, really, the interesting sort of stuff is from what our recent study is, which, is, as I've said, uh, was joint with Oxford. Uh, so Exeter and Oxford sort of working together. And they are they were. Well, I'm going to talk you first through our observations of C-peptide decline in living children and young people um, across over a 10 years of um, duration that we've looked at and then show you how this compares to beta cell loss in the pancreas donors across a similar duration length as well. Um, and importantly, and very in, to this, this is going to be very interesting. I'm certain. Yeah, I, I, well, I hope so. Um, I think in unique to this body of work as well, we're able to look at these trends at different ages of diagnosis um, in children from those diagnosed very young. So under the age um, uh, under the age of seven for, through to those uh, diagnosed over the age of 13. And so by stratifying our sort of results or our observations in this way, uh, I'll then discuss perhaps then what that means for patients and clinical outcomes and uh, in the context of intervention trials, which is, I suppose is quite a hot topic at the moment. It certainly is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we all, I would hope everybody listening to this has some idea of what type one diabetes is, but if you don't, it's a disease defined by the inexorable autoimmune destruction of pancreatic beta cells, and that leads to endogenous insulin deficiency. And uh, since about the 1970s, uh, to assist with treatment decisions in both type one and type two diabetes and to monitor the course of disease, we've actually been measuring endogenous insulin secretion, but 
through a surrogate marker, and that's the 31 amino acid protein um, uh, C-peptide, which is a byproduct of insulin biosynthesis, and it can actually be detected in the blood serum. Um, and the reason that we use C-peptide over measuring insulin directly is because it's secreted in equal concentrations and at the same time to insulin, and it's got more favorable kinetics that allow measurement, um, and it's not uh, affected by exogenous insulin, which is important. And again, since the sort of first detections of uh, C-peptide in the blood serum in the 1970s, there has actually been a wealth of evidence that shows that a large proportion of people with type 1 diabetes uh, do still have measurable circulating levels of C-peptide. And that demonstrates this persistence of insulin secretion. Um, and in some cases, this is for many years after diagnosis. We yeah, I mean, in, including, you know, including medalists, right? I mean, some of these yeah, people have sure. had it for for the yeah. longest periods so, of time. Yeah, so people that can see this graph sort of here, you've got people out here at 50 years yeah. duration, 70 years duration that are still secreting, although small amounts, but measurable levels of, of, um, of insulin as measured through um, this a stimulated C-peptide is, is, is on that graph. Um, but we've also seen this from the pancreas, we've seen this in the pancreas. There's evidence from histological analyses from donor pancreata that show this persistence of insulin positive beta cells. And so really these findings together a long time ago now, but they challenge the dogma that all beta cells were destroyed at or soon after onset of type one diabetes. And that's sort of inspired a various number of um, sort of research studies trying to uh, enable these beta cells to continue existing perhaps uh, against immune attack. I suppose also this sort of these sort of studies and all of this data that's built up, I guess, from the 70s um, highlights that actually the autoimmune destruction of B cells is markedly, uh, markedly heterogeneous in people with type 1 diabetes because some people um, experience more um, destruction perhaps than others, we could call it. Um, and it's well known that there are differences in progression of disease between children and adults. But there is a recent body of work um, by P. Elite. Um, in Exeter uh, and also others that has shown that even within children there are differences in progression uh, and that could be driven in what we think is an underlying endotype uh, so slightly different disease processes um, and, and interestingly these uh, these endotypes are strongly associated with age of diagnosis so the studies that I'm referring to um, it was seen it, it it's sort of been looking looking at in longer duration in those diagnosed very young so under the age of seven they retained less c-peptide and also uh, had uh, less uh, uh, insulin producing beta cells or islets that contained insulin producing beta cells as compared to those diagnosed between seven and 12 and, and even less as compared to those diagnosed um, at or over the age of 13 and this is in longer duration this is this has been looked at yeah, almost as if the immune system can't quite shut it down once it's established. In the young, in the young. The, you, you yeah, mean. as it gets, I mean, I heard a talk by David Harlan one time and he was saying, it's just the weirdest, strangest disease because, you know, you expect the immune system to do its job, but it doesn't quite do its job, right? Because, because it doesn't quite shut all of the functionality down in yeah, some true. individuals. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so, so yeah, so based on sort of the work 
or um, and within this context of these recently reported potentially endotypes, these that associate strongly with age at diagnosis, um, we've sort of tried to look at what happens across duration. So at the longer, at looking at this across the duration up to up to an over 10, 10 years. Um, and we first have looked at these trends in decline, as I've sort of mentioned in C peptide within living children. This is where it sort of started. Um, and these these were all, all diagnosed in the age of 16 uh, taken and samples were taken from the UK grid cohort, which is one of the largest cohorts actually with random serum C peptide measurements. Uh, that's four thousand and seventy nine samples. Um, and originally it was, it was so large that originally it was set up for genetic studies. Um, and then the next we've looked at trends uh, or we've sort of compared then what we've seen in the C peptide and the living people to the trends of beta cell loss within two of the largest pancreas biobanks that we've got access to the endpoint and the extra archival diabetes biobank as well. Um, and actually it's, it's important for me to point out, so we have 235 samples there, but it, it's, it's important for me to out, point out that an extensive analysis that can span duration uh, from those diagnosed very young um, wouldn't actually be possible without the combination of these two biobanks. So it's this extra archival diabetes biobank, which is sort of a key to what we're able to actually look at. And, and if we sort of put this graph on here, so you can kind of see that, but I'll talk you through it. Um, as I've sort of said, we keep mentioning this extra archival diabetes biobank is quite self-explanatory. It is held in Exeter uh, and it is archival. Uh, so it was curated around 50 years ago. Um, and unfortunately, obviously, at the time when these, these biobanks were, um, th this biobank was curated, clinical detection and treatment of diabetes wasn't as good as it is now. So there are lots of donors within the uh, EADB biobank that were young and that died at diagnosis which fills in a gap that we have with NPOD, the NPOD Biobank, which is the more recently uh, curated biobank, I think in 2007 it was curated. Let me um, ask you, is this the first time um, that these two databases have been looked at together? So there's been a little bit of looking at it with um, just, just at a, more of a cross-sectional sort of time point with um, a couple of the short duration samples, mm. not as many. So we sort of put more, we put all of like this together or more. Yeah, you really put together. the picture, put the picture yeah. together. And this is amazing. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So we were able to sort of look at, if you sort of look in this bottom um, left corner of this graph, you can see we've got a lot of samples that are young that are, that are diagnosed really, really, um, that, that are, sorry, have really short duration. Yeah, um, and so know, this, as you this say, EADB. Yeah, as you say, this is really filling in the blanks. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. To be able to sort of take it across, take it across the duration as well, not just looking at it at sort of right. one, one sort of uh, time, uh, time window. Fantastic. Sarah, go on. You had a question. Uh, oh, no, perhaps I was just going to add on there as well. You know, we have done quite a lot of work of kind of trying to sort of see whether the findings that we have in the Exeter Archival Diabetes, Diabetes Biobank mirror what we see in NPOD in various studies that we've done over the years. So we do try to put the two together, but we've never done it on this scale before. Yeah. And as Alice says, looking in the, um, you know, what's happening in both short and long duration disease. Yeah, and then that's I that's what I was sort of getting at. Like I had not seen this kind of compilation before in the literature, and I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's really important to sort of try and use what we've got. You know, these right. um, NPODs are an absolutely fantastic resource, but and we just don't have 
the short duration young donors yes um and that's and that's a good thing because that means people that are very young are not dying of diabetes at diagnosis that's true um but we we're using sort of the, these these amazing this amazing biobank that was created by alan Fowlis in glasgow 50 years ago may, maybe over now um and he's he put in so much work to take these um autopsy um samples and, and put it together and build this sort of biobank i think it's and actually so, oh sorry i was just gonna say i just think it's so important like to go back sometimes into either the literature or into these data sets and view them with with you know current eyes current scientific, you know, wisdom. And I think that's kind of what you did. You really took advantage of going back into this, um, you know, into this data set and, and brought it together with this, uh, with the other more current one. And, and wow, it's, I, I can't wait to see what else yeah. is in here. I, I think as well, and Sarah, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the EADB, uh, a lot of the EADB samples are now like online for people to look at and the pancreatic, pancreatless, is that how we call yes. it? I, I, I might yes. pronounce it wrong. <laughs> no, it's right. That's pancreatless. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you can sort of, um, other people can can look and try and, and use this um, really historical um, piece, of, piece, of, piece of data, I suppose. Beautiful. Um, okay. Yeah, cool. Um, so, okay. So, I suppose let's get on to what we actually found, I suppose. So what did we observe in the data first, I guess, starting with the C-peptide decline in the UK grid cohort? Um, so we first, uh, when we was looking at looking within the uh, C-peptide decline trends, we first started looking at proportions. So the proportions of children that retain detectable levels of C-peptide. Um, I've put the graph on here, but for those people like just listening uh, on across across the X axis, we've got uh, categories of duration, which we looked at, which is uh, less than one year. So basically at duration one to five years, five to 10 years and then greater than greater than 10 years as well. Uh, and then on the Y axis is the proportion of those with detectable C peptide and then the colored bars um, are the stratification of the age of diagnosis associated endotype categories that we've got. So red being very young, uh, yellow is our in between group, uh, the seven to twelves, and our blue is the our over sort of thirteen group. Um, and what happens is, as you could sort of see from this, it's not necessarily this isn't necessarily um, wildly new. Uh, we can see that the proportions of those retaining detectable C. Uh, levels of C-peptide declines across duration and it happens um, for each age of diagnosis category. But what is the most striking here um, is this marked decline that we get after onset of type 1 diabetes in those diagnosed under seven. So you're dropping, um, dropping from nearly 90% um, or nearly everybody having detectable levels of, of C-peptide at uh, diagnosis. And then after one year, far quicker than any of the other age groups. Uh, the, those diagnosed under seven are dropping to 33% still proportionally retaining detectable levels of C-peptide. Um, and so, yeah, so this is, this is, was really the most, our sort of most striking sort of thing to, yeah. uh, to, to note was these young children uh, seem to be rapidly progressing towards a, a near total or, or very, very, um, minimal levels of detectable C-peptide. Very few people um, uh, did. Uh, and so the next thing then we did when we sort of had found or seen this, we then actually looked at the absolute levels of detectable C-peptide. So what the actual levels were in those that retained C-peptide. 
And we see this same pattern of decline um, again, but what is emphasized is that C peptide is significantly lower at or soon after diagnosis in those diagnosed very young as compared to those diagnosed older. So as you can sort of see the, uh, the red bars here starting much, much lower down uh, in this uh, under one year uh, duration category. Uh, so those under seven really starting low as compared to the, the seven to 12 category and the over 13 category sort of up here. It's a huge, huge, huge difference. Um, and it is also interesting to point out, point out also on here that there is a group of people um, across all categories of age at diagnosis. So uh, those diagnosed under seven, uh, seven to 12 and that should be seven to 12, sorry on that, uh, and over 13 um, at this 10 year uh, time point. There is actually still a group of people that are retaining levels of C-peptide. And this, this is um, sort of interesting, it calls to an interesting line of discussion, perhaps that we can pick up later. Um, uh, but, but there is still, no matter what age they're diagnosed, some, some people retaining still uh, levels of C-peptide, detectable levels of C-peptide. Fascinating. And so next, taking from what we learned, I suppose, or seen in... Um, living children in C-peptide, um, what does it look like for uh, patterns of or trends in beta cell um, loss? So these are from our pancreas donors from the EADB and the NPOD biobanks combined as we've sort of just talked about. And um, But for, I think first I'm gonna just talk you through how we actually quantified uh, beta, beta cells. What's a, what, what, we, what do I mean when I'm talking about, I've looked at uh, C-peptide loss, how I quantified this? Um, well, those that you are familiar perhaps with his, his um, histological analysis, um, we've got to sort of identify uh, islets in a pancreas um, that still contain insulin positive beta cells. Um, and in the past, this has sort of been done by using light microscopy, uh, munostaining for insulin and glucagon, and then identifying islets that have got insulin staining in them. Um, and, and actually for a small proportion of our samples, mainly from the extra archival diabetes, biobank um, because of their fragility and the rarity we, we have to complete counts in this way these counts are historical but actually for the majority we're able to um, interestingly digitize slides and the samples um, using sort of advanced this advanced technology called the vector polaris and this halo analysis system um, and the way that this works is it it digitizes the, the slide almost as if you've taken a, a microscope uh, view of it um, and then algorithms within the halo analysis system um, can then identify uh, different tissue areas. So I sort of put a little uh, workflow of, of, of what this kind of looks like in the system. We've got um, a blue is sort of stained, um, is, is tissue that's stained for glucagon. Uh, pink is tissue that's stained for um, insulin and green is, is other tissue. Um, and this is done through an algorithm that we tell it. Uh, and then we can then, then identify what an islet is based on some size parameters that we set. Um, and I suppose just a close up of, of what this then, what this actually looks like. So you can sort of see the blue staining, the pink staining, the, the green staining, and then the islets that are, have been identified but that we've, we've, we've set. We can then see and, and pick out which islets are still containing insulin or that is pink stain. And those are the ones that are circled in blue here. Um, or, we, or we identify them as they're not containing any insulin. Um, are these slides from a normal, oh, sorry, are these slides from a normal pancreas or what are these? These are, no, these are from a type one uh, diabetes okay. pancreas. So, yeah. so in a normal pancreas, it is, it is unlikely you will find 
Um, and in fact, sorry, again, can correct me. Has anyone ever found insulin deficient or truly insulin deficient islets in a, in a non-diabetic pancreas? I yeah. think to basically to classify type one diabetes, we use a definition of they've got to have more than 10 uh, insulin deficient islets. And, and, and almost, in, in fact, always we, in, in, in pancreases that have been identified as having type one diabetes, we will see that there is a near obliteration of, of islets across the pancreas. Um, I don't know if Sarah, you want to weigh in on that. But I, I, think... I mean, it's, it's very rare to find insulin deficient islets in, in healthy controls. Um, you do find occasional ones, but it is very rare, like less, far less than 1% of the islets that you would find in the section look like that. Whereas in a type one donor, it ranges from only, you know, a couple of percent to, um 60 or 70 percent of the islets that are contained still contain insulin and obviously in people who've had disease for a long time you might have no insulin containing islets left at all do you see any uh, distribution in the across the board in terms of the landscape of the pancreas do you see you know sort of loss of insulin um in islets uh, at the head or the tail at the center of the so pancreas you- in different age groups so you frequently see lobular loss of, so you get sort of various lobes of the pancreas. You will often see lobular loss of the beta cells. Um, and there is some evidence out there to suggest that you might kind of lose it from different regions of the pancreas faster than others. Yeah. But that's quite challenging for us to address in the EADB donors because we only have one or two regions of the pancreas in there. But that's something that you know certainly can be looked at a bit more in NPOD. Um, uh, donors but yeah there is some evidence to suggest that it's lost in certain regions of the pancreas faster yeah I I had read that I didn't see I didn't know if your research also kind of uh, supported that all right back to Alice no worries um yes so uh these sort of digitized slides that we've got um are enabling us to sort of pick not, not only identify um whether an islet's containing insulin or not, and that's, you can say whether a donor still contains or still has islets containing um, insulin producing beta cells. But we've also, we also sort of did was then try to quantify sort of maybe how how many uh, beta cells are are still there. And we've done this sort of by a a surrogate uh, measure of of beta cell area. Um, Mm. And the way that we've worked this out is we've done this as a ratio of um, insulin positive area. So that pink area that I was sort of saying from the, the those slides on the HALO um, analysis platform um, to the sum of the insulin positive and the glucagon positive area. So the sum of the blue and the pink. Um, and so this is just this, I just, just put this in here just so this gives, gives you a little bit of a context as to what I'm what I'm showing you, what I'm graphing um, in the next sort of couple of slides or throughout the next talk. So when we're looking at the pancreas. Um, So just like before with um, C-peptide, we we first started looking at proportions. So proportions of our donors that retained islets with insulin positive beta cells, as we've identified through the light microscopy or the vector polaris system. And again, across the x-axis, we've got the categories of duration, which we looked across in the Y's, these portion of those with islets 
um, with insulin positive beta cells and then the colored bars are our stratification by the age of diagnosis um, end type categories and this decline again occurs across duration um, again not surprisingly um, for each age of diagnosis category but there's this striking decline in those retaining insulin positive beta cells occurring in those diagnosed under seven after one year duration dropping from around 80 percent uh, um which is similar to the start point of all the other ages of diagnosis uh, groups um, to after one year uh, into the in one to five year duration category dropping to 8.3%. So one donor in 12. Mm. Um, and it's pretty, and it's pretty marked in this, in this graph. Yeah. Very striking. Very yeah. striking. Um, and again, so on to sort of our, our quantity, our surrogate for quantity of retained beta cells, um, which we've measured through beta cell area on our digitized slides, uh, we see this same pattern of, pattern of decline. Uh, but again, what's emphasized is that this quantity of beta cells is significantly lower at or soon after diagnosis in those diagnosed very young compared to those diagnosed um, older. Um, and it is important to note that we do get more variation um, in this graph, as you can uh, probably tell, as opposed to our C-peptide graph that we plotted with the um, absolute levels. But um, this is because the samples are much smaller uh, in these histological analyses. And although this is a limitation, it can't really be overcome because as we've discussed, there are very few other samples, if any, that we can include in this analysis. Yeah. We're doing sort of the largest extensive analysis possible uh, in uh, child uh, pancreas stones. Yeah, no, this is very, this is very interesting. What I'm going to do next now is just put these two observations from uh, from living and from donors uh, next to each other, because this is what I also think is really interesting. Um, but the trends that we're seeing seem to mirror one another. So on the left, we've got proportions of living children retaining detectable uh, levels of C-peptide. And then on the right, we've got trends of pancreas donors retaining islets with these insulin positive um, beta cells. And we see this same decline across duration for all ages of diagnosis, this marked drop off in those diagnosed under the age of seven after one year. Um, and also a group over 10 years duration that still have some C-peptide left. Um, and this group that in our donors that still have some islets containing insulin positive beta cells too. And if we look at the um, sort of absolutes, the quantity uh, graphs, we do again see this same mirroring, but we see that those diagnosed under seven are starting with less. So starting with, with lower uh, levels of C-peptide or lower amounts, perhaps of uh, beta cells, yeah. um, as compared to those as compared to those diagnosed at these older ages. So a little, I I put like a little. Um, summary slide to try and uh, that you could just maybe if, if you have in your mind this is something maybe to hold in your mind about what I guess the key take-home points of this are is that we're getting this reduction um, in C-peptide secretion that mirrors the extent of beta cell loss across all ages and duration of diabetes within children that we've looked at um, and personally I think there's a very important point that our work highlights uh, or that's highlighted I suppose in the analysis we've done is that the children diagnosed under the age of seven have lower levels of C-peptide and fewer islets containing insulin positive beta cells are close to diagnosis. Um, so I think those are the two sort of take home points. Um, and I guess with those sort of points in mind, why is that, What's what does that mean? How is that important? Um, yeah. Why is it critically important? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Always, always a big question. Yeah. Um, and we know sort of 
so so we've sort of talked about like this heterogeneity of type 1 diabetes in in children and and we've talked how perhaps um this is driven by underlying endotypes our, our work is is supporting um this sort of fairly recent and is possibly contentious hypothesis um but this data is it's absolutely clear <laughs> that there is differences in progression in children i think that's the bottom line yeah despite um, people's um you know kind of pushback on that is not as not a good business case i mean you can't yeah you can't <laughs> yeah. just ignore reality <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think yeah i think it, it, it what we what we're showing is 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 data is is it, or right. what we're showing is just what we're seeing you know exactly um and, and so it sort of goes with what we, what's been suggested or the end type sort of hypothesis is sort of going with it. And, and I suppose that, you know, this, this rapid depletion that we've, that we're seeing um, in C-peptide and also beta cells uh, mirrored in the, in the donors as well, uh, in those that are diagnosed under seven years in the very young, uh, when we're just looking at, at diagnosis compared to the um, after one year duration, it, to me, it really emphasizes that early intervention close to or before diagnosis is is, time, is absolutely time critical in those progressing really to disease uh, in very early life. And it and it really calls for um, this necessity to improve prediction in type one diabetes. There is a couple of other a couple of studies sort of that are recent that are, are, are again marching along along this line as well. Um, and I sort of would I guess I'd hope that this is sort of. You know taken into account or or, or um you know maybe these endotypes or, or or sort of some of the data that we're showing is uh sort of maybe influence some of the the, the maybe screening things that we're seeing yeah um, no i think so i mean it what you found here and what you're showing is certainly is just supporting this whole idea that early screening <clears throat> identification of those at risk you know, teplizumab, a prevention bio, they're all trying to target um, that space. And I also feel like, you know, it's becoming more evident, at least through the literature, that it, lo it looks as if, there, you know, there's a multiple hit model, which seems to be, you know, kind of gaining more speed. And the, the fact that perhaps someone has a hit and then they, they go into remission and then there's another hit and then they go into remission, right? And then that's the final yeah, thing. Yeah to bring yeah. them to, to their diagnosis. So I think your, your work here really um, is great to illustrate the landscape of what's happening. Yeah, and it's interesting you sort of bring up the, that Tetlizumab as well, like um, sort of pop that as the next and another sort of potential point to talk about yeah. these differences that we're seeing in progression, which we're observing in, you know, in this study this is something that will influence or should influence intervention trials and it sh potentially should be considered in planning and interpretation. It is worth noting that in the recent immunotherapy trials of tetlizumab, people that were of sort of people at or pre-diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, all participants were actually over the age of seven. Mm. And with the suggestion that we're, that we're sort of saying or showing and, and from others as well, that the youngest children are experiencing maybe a quicker progression of type 1, it's yeah. driven possibly by a different mechanism, um, it, you, you know, one could speculate that um, if the effects demonstrated in the in the trials that we've that we've seen would actually be replicated uh, to the extent in children of younger ages. Um, it is, you know, the importance of these endotypes is something yet to be fully elucidated. And I know it is a very it's contentious, it's a nice debatable, nice debate topic. In Exeter, it isn't a debate topic. It is, um, yeah, it's, it's potentially gospel in Exeter, but no, uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, 
but but yeah there's um um but yeah if we are it is reasonable to sort of put out there that if we are to see an effective um intervention or even a preventative therapeutic we younger children must be recruited into these trials to ensure yes. efficacy uh, absolutely i uh, yeah i completely agree with this and also you know i just spoke um, with Jack Verosco, who's down at University of Texas, Austin. He does a lot of medical imaging. And he was, he came, you know, went to Georgia Tech, then he was at Vanderbilt with Al Powers, and then he's now at Texas. And he is, uh, you know, he's looking at pancreatic volume, actually declining at, you know, during the first year after diagnosis, and he's really monitoring that. And so that's like also following along with what you guys are seeing that, you know, not only like something is really changing, um, morphologically functionality and those earlier, you know, patients should be included to really fully understand the, the spectrum of the disease. And I mean, while some might argue, Oh, endotypes, you know, business case, the bottom line is breast cancer at one point was just treated with a one broad brush. And now it's very, it's, it's much more a personalized approach. And that's, you know, my opinion is that, uh, that that's where type one should probably follow because uh, it's doable, but you have to identify the different uh, types of yeah. type one first. And I have a question in the audience from Braulio Marfil from, uh, Canada. Yeah. How's it going? Hey, Brian. Hi, Alice. Hey, hey, how hey, you? how are you? Good. Great work. <laughs> Great work. I really love what you what you did. Um, and you know, it really like when you mentioned about the endotypes, I really was like, okay, I don't know the grid cohort that you used, but you mentioned something about gene uh, genetic analysis that we're doing. So I'm I'm wondering, did did you have do you have any data on on, on HLA or maybe antibody, autoantibody status to actually, you know, look into this endotypes with your data? So I don't have access to that genetic data. There has been a study that has looked at it um, with John Todd and uh, Jamie Inshaw. So Jamie, I would note as well, Jamie Inshaw is, a, is another co-author on this, this piece of work um, that did try to look at um, different genetics let's say between um across sort of the end those endotypes uh personally it's difficult when you to, to sarah's sort of uh, i don't know whether sarah you can weigh in on this but it's it is difficult to try and separate out genetics in this way and it kind of almost makes it um it, it goes to the other argument which people don't which people are sort of opposing or, or try to oppose this endotype hypothesis with it of that it, it potentially is a continuum um, and I don't think that we're not necessarily, we're not necessarily saying it's not a continuum, but we're not, but what we're, but we're not, we're not sort of, uh, what's not being accounted for is the fact that these, those diagnosed under sort of under seven have got some different mechanism of disease. I'm not sure how driven or that it is by the HLA or how much we can pull out from, from HLA, uh, um, with that as compared to those sort of diagnosed over the age of age of 13 there was there's some of the results in 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 that in that study that they've done which i think is that published sarah is that, yeah, 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 it's published. yeah. I, can't, I can't remember what journal it was published in. i was going to try and i was trying to remember where it was published in but um it, you could sort of have a look at that and take what you will from those results there um, are a couple of genes that they've identified that kind of pull out in the very young cohort 
um, but it's not it's not dramatic differences that they're seeing genetically. But it may yeah. be that it's something more to do with the the time that you get the trigger and where the pancreas development is. So maybe it's not so much you know there is clearly some genetic components, but it might be to do with um, so for example those children diagnosed under seven um, are likely to have got their first sort of evidence violet autoimmunity, you know, kind of under the age of two, if you look back at kind of natural history studies and stuff, and the, the, the stage that their pancreas is in development is very different to individuals who tend to get the d- disease a bit later. They tend to be the GAD, autoantibody positive individuals. They seroconvert that bit later in life. And the pancreas goes through this massive kind of remodeling and restructuring at that particular sort of stages of life and maybe it's got something to do with when they get the trigger what their pancreas looks like how the immune system is evolving at that time and all of those things come together to develop maybe a slightly different disease course and it just seems to be much more aggressive in the younger children and I think as Alice has pointed out you know this has got really interesting you know um, implications for trials um, in the future you know obviously we need to make sure that the safety stuff is all done first in in an older population Um, but hopefully we might be able to move some of these kind of immunotherapies into younger individuals and we might hope that they're actually going to be more effective in them because the immune um, attack seems to be more aggressive you seem to get that more rapid destruction of the beta cells which is what Alice has has presented today yeah exactly yeah I mean I guess you could say if you're thinking about vaccinations you know, I mean, children already, you know, experience, you know, many different vaccinations. So it wouldn't be, um, you know, out of the, you know, out of the um, ordinary to, to, to think about using vaccinations on young children. Um, I have a question for you. Great presentation. Very interesting data from uh, Malin Floods from Tolberg. Congratulations. Um, what is known about the C-peptide levels in different age groups among non-diabetic children and adolescents? Are they the same or do they differ on average? I, I, I would like, I wanted someone to ask you this question because I'm really interested in it as well. Um, I don't think this, this sort of extent or this sort of extensive analysis kind of hasn't really been, been, been done. I think, and it's one key fact within diabetes research is we don't really know what's normal (laughs) um uh, really or or, you know we're we're looking at so sarah's talking about uh how the pancreas is different uh or 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 might be different and how sort of pancreas anatomy or morphology sort of um changes as you go through um sort of as you as you go through puberty or you grow up and, and so on um in what we do know, I suppose, most of the, most studies are done in, in in we know from adults, I guess, or we look at sort of type two diabetes as well. Uh, people without diabetes have high levels of C peptide, and when I say high levels, I, I sort of I talk in picomoles because per liter, because that's how, kind of how we do it in in the UK. But I, I'm talking in, into the thousands, um, and and those diagnosed with with diabetes are are well it's it's under 200 picomoles if you're if you're over if you have c-peptide over 200 picomoles at greater than three to five year duration you don't have type 1 diabetes there's something else going on that's sort of the the general sort of consensus um it's sort of it was an interesting it's an interesting point because it was something that i was thinking about if we if we have different sort of 
remodeling of, of the pancreas and maybe I, I i don't know again sarah you might have to weigh in on this about how the pancreas looks in in younger children without diabetes and how it changes whether there's more islets is if there's more islets we're going to get more more c-peptide secreted or more insulin secreted um i don't know <laughs> is the answer and i would love if, if, if I, i'm missing some some research somewhere but um it's absolutely something that needs to be done um because yes we're making all these claims uh, within type 1 diabetes but yeah it, I, I wouldn't expect it to look the same in, in people without diabetes but it, it but it's something that certainly should be looked at and, and almost compared to or you know we could almost normalize our data or this sort of data too um Sarah I don't know whether you yeah I mean I would just say the same you know I don't think it has been thoroughly researched this I don't know whether some of the information might come out from some of the natural history trials where they're following children and they can have you know kind of um, the match controls within there but um, you know and not a lot is known um, and and in terms of yeah there's loads of changes going on within the pancreas at that point the the percentage islet area is higher in the children but you know relatively it's still less than you would see in an adult and we just yeah. don't know enough about it like you you pointed out a minute ago we don't understand normal brilliantly in terms of you know the pancreas and beta cell function and all things like that so I think you know these are things that we really need to pick apart in order to be able to understand what's abnormal with with type 1 diabetes and so I think this is definitely a, a, an area of, of further research for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, seems. It, wouldn't it be great in, <clears throat> if, it, in addition to the CGMs, they would have, you know, uh, a continuous C-peptide monitor, right? You could wear one of those. <clears throat> that would be interesting as well, <laughs> and really yeah. kind of get down, get down to brass tacks with what that might look like in normals and those who are progressing to type one. I have to get Tim yeah. on that, Alice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, um, bio, I love um, the biomedical uh, biochemist with, with absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the biochemical yeah. engineers. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting you just brought up sort of CGM because I, I guess that that was a sort of another point that I I think is always quite um, is is important to sort of note when we're talking about people with lots of C peptide people with or people with diabetes with lots of C peptide still or people um, with diabetes that, that don't have like lots. Um, we do see uh, there's lots of studies out at the moment using CGM to try and sort of gauge a better insight, you know, daily insights um, as to what's going on with people's people's glucose. And there are studies and some of my studies as well um, I've done have sort of been looking at uh, trying to the sort of relationships that we see with with people with C peptide from higher high levels to lower levels within that to see how that sort of impacts glycemic variability. And you know this roller coaster of diabetes is a roller coaster for everybody. Oh, yes, oh, yeah, uh, and and so and so, but there, but actually these biological factors, so C peptide, actually has a huge role to play in how much of a roller coaster that that roller coaster actually is. <laughs> you know, mm. um, and so you know these people, these these children, or uh, and, and in fact this goes for anybody that are not making lots of C peptide. And and in our study, we're sort of showing that from from diagnosis these kids don't have uh, a lot of c peptide really these these children are going to perhaps experience a, a bit more of a um 
bit more of a roller coaster of, of type one. And we should be really uh, taking this into account in our clinical management strategies of them, you know, earmarking these these children or for, for more intensive management strategies. And yeah, that's about, an like, excellent sort of clo clo excellent closed loop and, and 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 all of the systems that are out there, which I know, and I you know, in the UK there is the guidance out there that that children diagnosed young do end up sort of going on to technology that's that's aiming to try and sort of ease this this diabetes uh well ease the variability the roller coaster of it and the burden of di diabetes and um, that's sort of in our in guidance but but um it really should be it, it really should be sort of the forefront of people's minds is, is, is thinking this or clinicians minds see peptide does have an influence on on diabetes it's not the person and necessarily their management and their behavioral factors which is the sole thing driving what clinicians might be seeing in variability in the variability that they're they're, they're observing um there is these biological factors that that play that come into play um so yeah. so yeah, that's that's quite a side divergent from CGM, but it just it sort of sparked me. No, uh, it's a great it's a it's a great commentary, and um, together with um, Dr. Demelio at uh, IU and another physician at Stanford, um, we are planning to bring uh, up some of these uh, points to a whole cohort of young physician scientists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, coming soon. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think this work is beautiful. I mean, it really is, um, you know, it's very carefully constructed. You guys really went through both the, at the tissue level, functional sort of, um, you know, level in terms of C-peptide as a marker for function. And, um, you know, I think it's going to bring, um, it's really gonna, it's gonna add more fuel to this, um, uh, you know, the hypothesis of there are definitely endotypes and, right? Or whatever you wanna call it, theory. <laughs> Wait, let's go with theory. Theory, theory, yeah, let's yeah. do that. I don't wanna upset people. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, I mean, it was a great talk. I so appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck on Thursday. And um, we, we can't wait to see, um, you know, what's next for you. Do you have, uh, you know, something uh, lined up next? I possibly will be seeing Braulio a little bit more often. Um, so potentially, uh, uh, yeah, investigating the, the pathway or it's not that it's not that big news, but um, if the ADI, the Alberta Diabetes Institute will have me, um, I uh, will be likely heading out to Alberta to work a little bit more closely with uh, islets, the islet transplant sort of patients yeah. or, or, or sort of on that side of things. I know you had Spralio and, and James had talked We're recently to, yeah, <laughs> to, to sugar signs. <laughs> so, That's so fantastic. Maybe, training, yeah, so, trained, yeah. at, trained at a phenomenal institution and bringing the knowledge to another phenomenal institution to do more work. That's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so uh, we'll see. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, keep an eye on on what you're doing, Alice. Thank you again for talking thanks. with us. And um, yeah, no worries. We can't wait to share this uh, this talk with uh, the scientific world. Have a great rest of your day, and good luck on Thursday. Good luck thanks. Thursday. See you. Thank bye you. Bye. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again.